HD3 Detroit, KMPS HD3 Seattle, WBMX HD3 Boston, and on AOL Radio and Yahoo Launchcast. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. What is a poltergeist? Are European poltergeists different from their American colleagues? Do our temporal and spatial references even apply to poltergeists? Well, hello there, and welcome to the 404th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And those intriguing questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And as you can guess, I'm Ben. So we've dedicated several shows to poltergeists lately, but it seems to be a bottomless subject. Pardon the pun. Wait. I don't think that will be a pun. It's no. not. It's not a pun. I was. I was trying. I was trying to dig a pun out of there and then b- blame you for it. Fail. Uh, yes, I guess. Uh, I'll just excuse that comment. And on our uh, and our guest tonight uh, brings a European perspective to the whole picture. Jeff Holder is a prolific author of regional books on the paranormal. I find that books like these are indispensable not only in getting to know a given area, but in adding depth and parent to paranormal research case by case. A Welshman with an English accent who lives in Scotland with his French wife, Jeff Holder is the author of more than, I think, 5,000 books. <laughs> He's written a lot more than I have. It's all I know. I can't stand that. Anyway, a nonfiction books on strange mysteries, the paranormal, and crime. Jeff is known as a painstaking researcher, and his books are well-written, uh, certainly a mix of extensive historical study and diligent field research, stone circles, folklore, holy wells, lake monsters, and ghosts of all ilks along with witchcraft, UFOs, fairies, big cats, I thought it said big cars, big cats, and popular culture. Yes, Jeff writes about them all. car of Scotland. Yes, that's right. Anyway, uh, Jeff also wrote uh, the STV series uh, Mysterious Scotland. Uh, Jeff periodically ventures forth from his book-lined Eyrie in Perth, Scotland, to wave his arms about in front of audiences and bellow about a wide variety of subjects. He's just like us that way. Mm. Uh, from whether well, our book line basement, from cryptozoology and folk magic to hauntings and local mysteries. His uh, 5,000 books include 100 thing, 101 Things to Do with a Stone Circle, Haunted Aberdeen, Paranormal Dundee, The Guide to Mysterious Glasgow, The Guide to Mysterious Loch Ness in the Inverness area, The Guide to Mysterious Perthshire, The Guide to Mysterious Sky, uh, Sky and Localsh, The Guide to Mysterious Iona and Staffa, and his most recent, Poltergeist Over Scotland, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. And there are many, many more. Now and then, Jeff ventures forth, uh, rather south of the border into England, that is, such as is, is in his book, the, the Guide to the Mysterious Lake District, tongue-tied tonight. His website is jeffholder.com. That's G-E-O-F-F, holder.com. So, Jeff Holder, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Well, good evening to you both. It's a pleasure to be back here again. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So, hard to believe it's been a year since you were last on the show, wow. Jeff. It seems like it was like last week. So your latest book is about uh, poltergeists in Scotland. So can you tell us about some of the uh, cases that you've dealt with or seen or researched? Yeah, well, just to sort of put these things um, into a sort of broader uh, perspective, um, I've been spending quite a lot of time thinking about poltergeists recently. And I've uh, put this into sort of two books on poltergeists. One's called Poltergeist of Scotland, as you rightly say, and that's the first history of Scottish poltergeists that anyone's ever written, and that looks at 134 cases wow. um, over almost 400 years, it, the earliest case being 1635 and most recent being earlier this year. Um, what I've also looked at 
is an is an is a book called What Is a Poltergeist, and in that I've um, been thinking about the different ways, the different theories and belief systems that people have put forward to explain poltergeist phenomena, and I've um, tabulated that into sort of nine areas nine theories that people have, have suggested about poltergeists and that has a much more global perspective um i'm looking at cases particularly in, in the us and canada uh, across western europe australia um africa japan uh, and that's trying to sort of give an understanding of what people how people make sense of poltergeists in within their cultural contexts uh, of, of interesting the i've got those sort of two things running in parallel so what is a poltergeist? <laughs> 25 <laughs> words or less, Jeff. Well, uh, okay, 25 words less, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> We've had a number, well, I've had a number of experiences with them myself over the years, and uh, we had uh, Dr. Uh, Andrew Nichols, who has sort of made a study of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, nobody, you're right, nobody tends, nobody agrees. So this is, uh, I'll give you my impressions as we go, but what, uh, give me some examples of, of, of what you suggest, because I haven't read the book, what examples of, uh, examples of what you might suggest as explanations for Poltergeist. Okay, well, the, the, the nine areas that I've divided these explanations into, and they overlap to, to a degree, but you can broadly categorize them as this. The first one, I think it's probably the oldest one, is that Poltergeists are demons, by which I mean non-human discarnate entities. That was my first theory, yeah. And the second idea is that they're caused by witchcraft, uh, which is being uh, human practitioners of magic. And indeed, as far as what I can tell, maybe the earliest American poltergeist that was ascribed to, to witchcraft uh, from 1682. Uh, the third uh, idea, which is probably the most popular idea these days, the poltergeists are ghosts, that is, the, you know, the spirits of the restless dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get into areas which are um, have sort of fallen out of favour, but which were once popular. Um, the idea that poltergeists are fairies or uh, kobolds or sort of household spirits or other sort of uh, invisible denizens of the places where we live. And we find that being a very popular idea in, uh, in Europe in the 17th, uh, 18th century. But I found examples of it uh, stretching back up to the 1980s. Then the fifth idea, is something which I think many people would be surprised about, is that um, in parts of Eastern Europe in the 19th century, there was a notion that uh, poltergeist behavior was absolutely down, down to vampires, uh, which is you know, great fun to sort of discover that. It's also true. Go ahead. Say again? It's also true. Go ahead. <laughs> I'll tell you later. Okay. Oh, I'm, I look forward to hearing that. Uh, then the next one is, is an idea that... Uh, First Caesar is Genesis in the 1930s in a post, post-Freudian context, which is that poltergeists are um, uh, spontaneous psychokinesis, powers of the human mind, ex- exteriorizations of, ex- of internal distress in some way. Uh, a sort of elaboration of that is a poltergeist for thought forms. That is to say they are something that uh, has been manifested, has been created by the human mind as something often something visible, the the word often is is used as tulpa. Uh, then the eighth idea, something that we have to acknowledge, is that poltergeists are hoaxes. Certainly, a percentage of poltergeist cases have proven to be fraudulent, and so one idea has been put forward is that they are all fraudulent. 
and then finally get the idea of a sort of late 20th century series of ideas that poltergeists are forces of nature. They are something to do with natural forces, whether that's geomagnetism, electromagnetism, or um, other elements of the natural world, and that's where their explanation lies and not in the supernatural. So that's in a summation of the sort of nine nine areas that I've I've sort of thought about poltergeists have been explained at over the years. Very good. Uh, Actually, I have have a question. Yes, please. So you don't monopolize the show. No, I know. I'm interested in this. Well, so am I. Okay. So you mentioned witchcraft as um, perhaps one of the explanations for this. So let's talk about that for a little bit because I, I saw that uh, in your little intro there. So what is the witchcraft of myth versus the myth, uh, the witchcraft of history, so to speak? Could you be a bit more precise there? Just sort of... Oh, well, usually people think of like, well, let's take Monty Python, for example. Everyone's <laughs> seen Monty Python, the Holy Grail, at least once. And they have the witch that they put on the nose, and it's like, oh, it's a false one, that sort of thing. And so you have people that think of witches as like these cackly old ladies that wear the hats and form magic things and make love potions and crap like that, versus we have like Wiccans here um, in Salem and things like that. So how would you compare witches of history to witches of myth that that sort of okay i've I've got you the um i suppose the principal distinction is is very much it's a social one um people in the elite within both church and state um had a firm intellectual conviction that uh, witches were servants of the of the devil um whereas at a sort of uh, a lower uh, less elevated social level, what you see is witches as practitioners of folk magic. Uh, folk magic is is literally the magic of the folk. It is something to do, it's most, I think of it as magic of turnips. You know, the, the, the church thing is, it, 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 witchcraft is the magic of, of, of the devil, but I think, you know, folk magic is the magic of turnips. I want more <laughs> turnips, therefore I will consult a witch so I can, I can get more turnips. And um, you see that, you see a tension between those two Beliefs, elite belief and folk belief manifested all the way through the uh, witchcraft trials of the 16th and 17th centuries. Mm. And in 1682 in New Hampshire, what we find is a, a, there was a, a property dispute, a very bitter and very sour property dispute going on between the colonists. Um, and some of that manifests itself in what what might call vandalism, where people damaging their neighbor's property. But then it, it something else happens, and the the property at the centre of it becomes the focus of major poltergeist activity, with stones being thrown, apports appearing in, in midair, damage being caused inside the house from things that are thrown inside the house, and even. Uh, benches and stools and kitchen objects being balanced in a complex pyramid, like the kind of thing you see in the, the film Poltergeist from 1982. Um, so you've got, you've got all of that, but the people in, who were suffering this, they knew what was causing it, and it was their neighbour who was a witch. They knew it was the witch who was doing this. Mm-hmm. So what they did, they did the standard folk magic anti-witch uh, practice, which is they, they made a witch pot, which they boiled up, uh, bent pins and urine, and this was an absolute, absolute classic 
uh, sort of folk remedy against witchcraft. Uh, over 170 witch bottles and pots have been found in the UK alone, buried under hearths and in chimneys and that sort of thing. And that's what they did to get it to, to work against the witch. That's they 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 boiled up a, a witch pot. So that's what you're seeing as the reality of witchcraft. It's folk magic and people working against it. It's funny. Ben and I are directly descended from Nicholas Disborough, who was. Uh executed for witchcraft in Hartford, Connecticut in 1640 something there was a, there was before the the Salem outbreak yes. which was 1690s there was one in, in the Connecticut Valley in the early 16 earlier 1600s and uh, more witches were killed there than in the Salem hysteria but anyway that's very interesting um why not? very good as a matter of fact but but let's uh, let, let let's get back to the poltergeist thing because the, i'm thinking of the bell witch case in tennessee which was attributed to a witch but it was actually a poltergeist and if i can go back to my first case of a, a sort of hardcore poltergeist experience in 1974 uh your i actually i counted eight uh, maybe i missed one maybe you're waiting for my theory for number 9 <laughs> uh but i, I the, the demon thing number 1 I was a seminary student, just assumed we were dealing with demons. So did the people I was working with, so did the priest. And we were trying to get the Diocese of Bridgeport, Connecticut, to, to authorize an exorcism. Witchcraft. The police accused us of causing the phenomena by means of witchcraft because, <laughs> because all these goofy things were flying around. Police and firefighters, and I uh, witnessed uh, floating refrigerators, things of this kind. I got hit in the leg by a flying television set, and all sorts of things were going on. And uh, the the press found out the city was tied up in knots, and Bridgeport is not a small town. And so the police accused us of witchcraft, which was goofier than what was actually happening. Uh, ghosts, the people in the house were speculating that maybe it was uh, the ghost of some uh, son of theirs who had died who didn't like the fact they'd adopted a child. Uh, nobody mentioned fairies, I must say that. Uh, the vampire thing, we'll, uh, we'll get back to that. Uh, yeah, we kind of have to break we do. We do indeed. Oh my goodness, we do. Okay, uh, we are. You are listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS News Sky Radio. We'll be right back with our guest Jeff Holder and our subject Poltergeist. Stay with us. Thursday is a power-packed day here on the Sky. Join us at noon for the I'm Thankful Network. At 1 p.m., it's the Dr. Pat Show. At 4 p.m., Colette Baron Reed takes the stage for the Colette Baron Reed Show. The Colette Baron Reed Show, where intuition, practical spirituality, great advice, a little woo woo fun, and fabulosity meet. Colette Baron Reed is an internationally renowned intuitive counselor, educator, and best selling author who helps others recognize and connect with their own intuition, potential, and purpose. Powerful motivational speaker, charismatic broadcast personality, and acclaimed performer, storyteller, and recording artist, Colette uses her extraordinary spiritual gifts to empower her clients to live a life that is awake and authentic, and to create a reality that is spiritual, deliberate, and meaningful. Call in early. The lines are hot. 248-545-7685. Instant feedback at NewSkyRadio.com. New Sky Radio. NewSkyRadio.com. New horizons, no boundaries. Powered by CBS, Yahoo, and Radio.com. Hello, baby, hello. Haven't seen your face for a while. Have you quit doing time for me? Or are you still the same spoiled child? Hello. 
just the only place you thought to go Am I the only man you ever had Or am I just the last surviving friend Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248 545 Soul. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. And we're back with our marvelous guest, Jeff Holder, who's certainly one of the more, more pleasant people we have on. Uh, it's been a year, it won't be a year again. But uh, we're going through the uh, subject of poltergeist, and Jeff has lined up a number of. of uh, possible interpretations of what poltergeist might be and i'm fascinated by this list because in my first major case which was the bridgeport poltergeist outbreak of 1974 as it's known the, all these things came up uh, almost every one of them except for the fairies <laughs> demon witchcraft ghost when the police the police who weren't accusing us of witchcraft were accusing us of a hoax so that was that was number seven on your list i, I believe uh, forces of nature. There was some uh, spe- uh, there was some speculation about seismic activity under the house by some of the city engineers who came in. And number six, the agent uh, or or 
psychokinesis theory, or tulpa sort of thing, which is uh, closest to the one generally accepted in parapsychology, is that somebody's actually causing this by energy they're emitting at a time of great turmoil. In this case, a child about to enter puberty was the theory. That came up, too. Now, number five, the vampire thing. I, I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but just to tell you what I'm talking about with that, I think that's the one that's correct. When you look at folklore, there's always some basis in fact, uh, no matter how buried in baggage it's become over the years, when you have the beginning of a legend. And we have found over these years that these poltergeists, or as we refer to them as uh, sort of a, a subset of the idea of parasites, parasitical entities, in folklore known as demons, although it's not a matter of theology, uh, these things tend to, to well, the, the ancient Sumerians called them life-sucking ghosts what later became vampires. And so they're not people who are sucking blood or wearing capes or have, uh, who hold a high and noble rank anywhere. They're, they seem to be these, these literally the, these uh, parasitical entities that literally will feed off human energy. And this is what we find at the bottom of a lot of cases that we study, particularly poltergeist cases, because I remember being in this house, all these theories are flying around. I, did, I was in the seminary, so I thought it was demons. But then these things came up you could, you could see them coming down the hall, sort of these gauzy figures. They threw the child across the room. I had a physical altercation with one. I could feel bone structure uh, in pushing against this, trying to protect this child. And uh, the, the vampire thing, Jeff, is, is the definition that I think, in my experience anyway, comes closest to describing what these things do. I mean, they're not servants of Satan or disembodied ghosts or anything else. They're... they're seem to be predators from what could only be called parallel worlds in the quantum mechanics sense of the word. And that maybe could be your next theory. Because <laughs> we, we use that, and it certainly seems to work. That's the only thing that really explain what these things are. What say you? Well, the, the notion of what you might call bottom-feeding non, non-human entities is something that's... Um, Come, I've come across quite, quite a few times. The, as you say, these aren't um, you know, the, 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 the dukes of hell... These uh, this this interpretation is that what we're dealing with is, is, a, is a kind of um, a sort of almost a semi well, a sort of collection of appetites as a, as a thing from a collection of um, of, of, of consciousness um, and um, the there's uh, um, two uh, British uh, authors. Uh, Guy Lyon Playfair and and Colin Wilson, and together they were working on this idea that um, that human beings under distress can can sort of somehow um, emit some kind of energy, that's, uh, to use the, the broadest term, and that if they if these sort of bottom feeding um, you know entities are around, they'll just play with that energy, and it, it gives them energy to actually manifest in the world and cause chaos and and and, and unpleasantness uh, to the human beings around them. So it's a combination of the human that you need you need a conscious human, a conscious human mind, a plus. These sort of free-floating, um, um, I don't know, vandals, and those those two come together to create what might be what, what might be regarded as a kind of parasitic entity. Um, I, as an idea that I've, I've come across uh, a, a few times, the um, the specific I, uh, notion I came across with, with the vampires uh, for the book was something that's a slightly different. Um, found this book 
written by a couple of uh, classic British Victorian adventurers. You know, they went off to Bulgaria in the 1860s, <laughs> where they had a high hold time, you know, bagging all the local wildlife and having great adventures. And um, then they, they also discovered a great deal about the beliefs about vampires in their area. And one of the things that you, s you quickly learn when, you, when you're looking at this kind of subject is that the, 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 the fixed figure of the vampire, the blood-sucking undead, is something that we've... That's just 200 years of fiction before um, the, the, you know, the latest... Before the bloodbusters went, <laughs> went across the, uh, the, 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 the page and the screen... We had lots of different people in Eastern Europe and the Northern Mediterranean having a, a wide diversity of vampire beliefs. In this particular part of, of, um, of Bulgaria, the belief was that vampires uh, came from the grave nine days after their death, but not as the uh, corporeal undead, but as, as almost invisible um, sort of spirits. Uh, which could only be seen at night by uh, the shadows they cast or the sparkles they created. And these vampires e behaved exactly like poltergeists. Mm. They created uh, chaos. They, sh they, they made the, the, the peasants live in fear. They threw things over. They made noise. They threw cow dung at um, religious icons. They were, they were classic vampires. Sorry, classic poltergeists, excuse mm -hmm. me. And... They existed in that form, the belief went, for 31 days. And um, this is what you might call the, the, the vampire um, lava, the larval stage. And sure. after 31 days, the, the body then rose from the grave, the vampire imago, if you like. And that vampire is the walking undead. But they didn't suck blood at all. They just looked like ordinary human beings. The only difference about them is that they, um, uh, they only had one nostril. And, and they, these <laughs> two were... British adventurers, they knew all about these vampires because their servant was the son of a vampire. Which which meant which meant they had a real so they had the fast track to the local vampire belief. Mm -hmm. Um and so that what I and I'd never come across that before. The idea that in, uh, in invisible vampires are you know th they are poltergeists for thirty one days. Um it's extraordinary the kind of things that you do discover when you investigate in this. That is very interesting, uh, although I've run into poltergeists that have lasted for years off and on. But th that belief that you just described was transported somehow, I'm still trying to find out how, to New England here in the, in the uh, 19th century. There were cases in Rhode Island of people being exhumed because their families believed they were vampires, and the descriptions of them were very, very similar to what you've just said. So, uh, but, you know, my idea of the vampire, I sort of tied it in with, with the idea of the, the beginning of the vampire legends, in my opinion, probably had something to do with the activities of these parasitical entities. You know, hence, we ex people explain things in a way they, they can best understand, and they, there you had it. So that's, that's one, another possibility. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you, no, all these stories are about things that make sense. Sure. Yeah, you have you got, on one hand you have poltergeist activity, and the other, the other hand people need to make sense of it, and they That's make it. sense of it depending on the belief systems that, of their time of their culture. Well, let me know from, and I, I want to give you a chance to talk about some of your cases and certainly the book, but uh, some of the characteristics I've noticed with parasites, and again, poltergeists are sort of a subset of this. If they've had enough to eat, they become poltergeists. In 1975, I had another case uh, near New Haven, Connecticut, and it was just uh, this woman did uh, in the uh, sort of an apartment above a store that the family had owned just did everything the wrong way. She, she would come in every day and, and fight with it. She would yell at it. 
and do everything everything that was wrong in the sense of feeding it. And it got stronger and stronger. And it's the closest I ever saw to anything out of Hollywood. There literally were holes in the walls, words scrawled across the uh, the walls. Uh, a huge chair was thrown at me. This conversation would not be taking place had she not screamed and I had seen it coming. I mean, you wouldn't believe this stuff. So uh, this, this is the sort of thing that... that uh, they do tend to do, and it took a, num- a long time to get rid of this. The thing had pretty much uh, worn itself out, and so we got rid of it using a joke book, uh, actually. We, we got everybody laughing and generated a lot of positive energy, and it really worked. They never saw it again. So uh, th- th- then th- there are other levels. You can get into possession and, and, and things like that that I worked on as a seminary student. I don't interpret it the same way now as I did then. But uh, and then uh, obsession, you know, people, the 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 host uh, bonding with the thing, and you, mm-hmm. you've seen it all. So uh, give us uh, some more of your cases that you've uncovered. You've uncovered quite a few, and uh, talked about them in the book. Tell us about some of the cases. Well, oh, <laughs> um, well, one of my sort of uh, the, the favorite, um, one of my favorite ones. This is kind of related to the idea that you were just you were just saying about about the woman doing all the wrong things that she was feeding it. This is the idea that whatever the poltergeist is, that it can indeed be fed. Um, there was um, a, a really un- unusual uh, set of activity taking place in New York in the early 1930s. What you had is a, is a group of very precocious, intellectually precocious teenage boys that were, were, were started to... Um, they, they started to. They were reading all the you know the, the, the heavyweight books on 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 psychical research. So they decided to um, uh, conduct a number of seances, and oh, during dear. one of those these seances, um, uh, what appeared to them to be the uh, the ghost of uh, a dead person uh, called Doctor Bindelhoff appeared. Have you come across Doctor Bindelhoff? As a matter all? of fact, it rings a bell. But th- this scenario is. Un- unfortunately, very common in my experience. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Bindelhoff um, behaved a bit like a, a benevolent poltergeist. Um, only only when um, someone in the group had been rude or done something vulgar would they suffer a slap or something like that. Um, and at the time, they were convinced it was um, uh, the, the spirit of a, of a dead person, and, and Dr. Bindelhoff did tell them in in his many many written communications that were written at such extraordinary speed that no human hand could have could have achieved them. He did tell them that he was uh, the, the, a, a, a formerly alive human being. Now, the principal uh, boy in this group had form when it came to poltergeist activity. He'd been the focus of several poltergeist activities, both at his, his unhappy home and at another um, uh, uh, event when they... The, I hate a... to stop you, Jeff, but we have to take another break. This one oh, to sneak up. Okay, but we'll be right back to continue this amazing story with Jeff Holder. You are listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio, and we'll be right back. Enlighten. Empower. Enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons, no boundaries.
Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call me 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. And we're back with Jeff Holder, and we're talking about poltergeists here, and we're having interesting conversations during the breaks as well. So, Jeff, please continue where, where I interrupted you. Yeah, well, I was talking about um, an episode in um, New York in the early 1930s where this group of teenage boys um, um, were conducting seances and they were in communication, in extensive communication, with um, a spirit that de- described itself as uh, Dr. Bindelhoff. And the central character, um, uh, the, the, so the boy at the center of this, he, he already had form as, as a poltergeist focus. Uh, poltergeist activity had, had happened several times around him. And uh, although at the time they all believed that it was it was a ghost, in later years he came to realize that what had happened is there was basically a kind of tulpa that the group had manifested a thought form. Um, and the, the reason I, want, I wanted to bring this up is because he had very aggressive tendencies and um, he was very grateful that the other boys in the group didn't share those tendencies and it was only when they came together that they could create this very sort of benevolent um, uh, uh, semi-poltergeist, if you like, um, and that it seemed to be the sort of the group mind that created him, but also created this this this, this gentle spirit. And the, and the the chap at the centre re- realised that if he had somehow managed to create it himself, he would have actually created a very destructive. Um, a tulpa or, or, or poltergeist. So I think that's a really sort of, there, there may be some sort of insight that we can draw on that, that there's there's perhaps sometimes poltergeists are to do with the collective rather than with the individual. Oh, yeah, there have to be two to tango, as they say. Yes, indeed, yeah. Yes, very good. And uh, you mentioned another case that, that was really even more bizarre than some of these. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, this is going way back. This is um, this is from the the book uh, Poltergeist over Scotland. Um, one of the the best uh, documented cases in the whole in 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 the, in the world took place in uh, the 1650s in Scotland. And the reason it, it was uh, we know a lot about it is because a kind of journal was taking place at the time. This this was at a farm in uh, southwest Scotland, in a fairly, fairly rural area. And the manifestations lasted for two years. And the uh, it started off fairly gently with sort of noises and whistling. And it, it ended with um, endless fires, uh, endless destruction, and, and the entire farm being destroyed. Now, at one point, um, a, um, a, a naked arm appeared in, in midair, um, and started to bang on the floor, and um, the poltergeist, which was very vocal, um, uh, just said it, it identified itself as the the son of Satan. It said uh, that uh, that was not my hand; that was my father's hand. My hand is more black in the palm. I am the son of Satan. Um, <laughs> and you don't get many of those to the pound in, in poltergeist cases. Yeah, because well, you can't believe anything they say. No, no. Poltergeist play mind games all the time. And this, this is a mind game that's very, very potent in the 17th century when Satan is a, is, is a reality in many people's minds. Sure. Sort of the time when um, there was great many religious disputes in the country, not, not 
necessarily between Catholics and Protestants, but also between different flavors of Protestantism. Mm -hmm. Satan is bandied around all the time. Lots of people believe that Satan is present ever or all the time. So somehow the the mind games played by that poltergeist fixated on that. Wow. That reminds me of the Bell Witch thing. Uh, In my experience, these poltergeists will, will, because you can't believe anything they say, they push buttons, and that always does start out as the tapping or the feeling of a presence, and and it gets stronger as there's more anxiety, more fear, more anger, annoyance, and they they tend to get stronger. This is what happens, as I say, if you really trace the thing back. Now, the interesting thing with these these parasites is, and maybe maybe if if you have a case that, that uh, reflects any of this. Wait a second. We did, find... did we bring up ancient Me- Mesopotamian vampires? Mm, I did mention that life-sucking ghosts was, oh, was, was say, from yeah. their language, yeah. Right. Uh, that these things are very interesting. I've identified, funny, you have nine explanations for, for them, all of which could be plausible, but I have identified kind of nine different species of parasites, <laughs> uh, which is a funny irony. Uh, ranging from uh, the sort of, I, I refer to them as very wise. We've run into these, especially that one in Maine, wise in, in the sense of their own species, you know, how to take advantage of us. There are f- like farmers who will follow a family for generations and, and, and they seem to uh, know just what buttons to push. They, things are just peaceful enough so the family stays together, but they feed. Uh, they're, then there are the lower echelon, which have the characteristics of. The longer they spend, and many many of them are like this, the longer they spend attached to people or in our part of the multiverse, in our particular world, the more they forget their own origins and the more frightened they are of being separated from their host, which is a really fascinating tendency. You almost feel sorry for them sometimes. And the the Bell Witch case is probably, at least uh, certainly one of the most earliest recorded in one of the most famous American cases, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, the film American Haunting was based on it. Yes. And uh, this whole, this thing seemed to be quite interesting. Uh, I was, uh, I worked with the producers of the film and was, and was given access to some of the documents involved. It was a case of something negative happening, in this case, childhood sexual abuse, which apparently was taking place in my opinion, rang the dinner bell. And then you had all this stuff going on with four different entities who, when prodded by the townspeople who found out about it and came over to hear them sing and recite sermons word for word and read from the Bible, the poltergeist actually read from the Bible, uh, they were that, saying that... that, that uh, I, I, I found that in a great many 17th and 18th century cases. As have I, yeah. Yeah. And th- they said that they their origins were... They, were, they kind of hedged on it. They said they, they had connected connections with the local Native Americans and that they had been in the area for centuries. And interestingly enough, the local Native Americans were the mound builders, who were interesting in themselves, mm-hmm. but were believed to have practiced human sacrifice. And this sort of thing, think of the energy you can get from that or from war or any of these things. And the whole idea of, gee, maybe these, these things influenced our history somehow by, by making people think they were gods. Oh, yeah. You know, have, you, um, have you encountered the work of John A. Keel? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. The, the, I almost who, knew him. We, we, we were in touch briefly, but he died before he could be on the show. The man, man who wrote the Mothman prophets. prophets yeah, Johnny Kill. Yep, that's right. Yep. Yep. Well, one of his ideas, which he wrote about in a book called uh, This Haunted Planet, 1971, is what he called ultra-terrestrials. I can see it right from where I'm sitting. Yeah, his idea <laughs> was that um, um, all the 
sort of the, the supernatural beings that we've uh, in, uh, heard, we've heard about over over the centuries. You know, whether these are demons or angels or ghosts or uh, even um, extraterrestrials, are in fact masks that are worn by this um, ancient um, grouping of ultra-terrestrials with whom we share the planet, or rather, um, who perhaps uh, they allow us to share the planet with them. That's, that's this, his idea. That, I mean, and I have to say, this idea stretches my boggle factor to, yes. to the limit, and I have a pretty extensive boggle factor. But <laughs> it is yeah. a really interesting idea, is that all these things are actually the same thing, but with different masks. Yeah, John, John was perhaps onto something. You know, we didn't quite agree on the details, but uh, something like that could certainly be the case. Jeff, I wanted to give you, because time is a way of running out here, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your books, uh, website, and anything else you'd like to, to say. I'm sure our listeners would be really interested. Yep, sure. Um, there's, I've got two books coming out on poltergeists. The first uh, is called What is a Poltergeist? And that's uh, going to be available only as an e-book. And that has a global perspective and mostly looking at the USA and Canada. Um, and then the second one, which is a sort of a more conventional uh, paper-based book, uh, is called Poltergeist over Scotland. And that's the first history of Scottish poltergeists looking at, you know, 134 cases over 400 years. And the best place to get both of them is to go to my website, which is jeffholder.com, uh, G-E-O-F-F. H-O-L-D-E-R, and there's a, there's a page on that devoted entirely to buying things on Amazon, which is, I believe, some sort of small retailer that deals in the odd book or two. Um, and uh, so if people go there and they can get them you know, wherever they are in the world. Very good. Excellent. And uh, we certainly have a link to your site from, from our show site, certainly. Okay, so, so back to our subject, Jeff. Have you ever encountered a case, uh, and you talk about it in your book, of, of poltergeists uh, actually doing physical harm to people? Oh yes, in in in, my, in uh, many cases, um, uh, you uh, poltergeists seem to they seem to toy with us in some cases. In, in some cases, uh, you find um, stones um, moving fast through the air and then slowing down to 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 drop on people as as light as feathers, uh, and and people saying that they cause no harm. They 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 act merely like jokesters or or pucksters. And in other cases, you find people um, suffering um, some cases, some cases quite a major harm. Um, in very, the very, very recent years, just a few years ago, there was a case in uh, South Shields in northeast England where um, a family were, was literally terrorized by something that uh, was, had learned to communicate via uh, mobile phones and text messages. Really? Even when the items were, were switched off. Well, we're, we're going to take our next break there. I want to hear about that when we come back. But we're listening. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS News Sky Radio and NewSkyRadio.com. Our guest Jeff Holder. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Mondays are motivational. It all begins with you, and that's where the movement within, featuring life coach April Claxton, comes in. Join April and her uplifting guests Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Featured on Animal Planet, Court TV, Unsolved Mysteries, and The Hauntings, Psychic Barbara Mackey. Barbara is a sixth-generation psychic medium, animal psychic, and spirit communicator. Tune into Visions with Barbara Mackey at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. There are four corners, and Will and Nancy will take you there at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Existence is what we live for. Adventure is our journey. 
metaphysical topics, inspiring and educational guest speakers, psychic readings, and more. Artie's the Party with Angels and Answers, Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Psychic readings and more. Join the fun. What goes bump in the night? Heidi knows. At 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Heidi Hollis's The Outlander will lunge into topics on all things outlandish and more. Call in or write Heidi to vent or get advice about your paranormally inspired curiosities or challenges. Call in early. The lines are hot. 248-545-7685. Instant feedback at NewSkyRadio.com. New Sky Radio. NewSkyRadio.com. New Horizons. No Boundaries. Powered by CBS, Yahoo, and Radio.com. Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now 248 545 Soul. New Skyradio.com. The 
Okay, we're back with Jeff Holder, author of a number of books, two of them on Poltergeist about to come out, and we're having a fascinating conversation on that very subject, comparing notes. Uh, I wanted to kind of move right along here then, Jeff. Uh, I was During the break, I was mentioning to you the experience I had in the Bridgeport house in 1974 of the cat allegedly talking. Now, the man, Mr. Gooden, in the house swore that that cat would come up to the top of the stairs and demand to be let out of the, of the basement by pounding on the door and shouting, let me out of here, you dirty Frenchman. Because <laughs> Mr. Gooden, of course, a gentleman of French-Canadian descent, of which I am partially of French-Canadian descent, with all due respect. Uh, but, I mean, it, it, I, 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 as I told you during the break, I will never forget the sight of correspondence from NBC, CBS, and ABC in New, in New York City, which was not far away, standing around the cat holding microphones up to the cat and asking it to say something. So, I mean, have you ever run into cases where there have been uh, talking animals? I mean, anything can happen in a poltergeist case, but does that ever come up in your uh, in your research? Ah, that's a, that's an interesting example. Um, not so much, uh, I'm trying to think, talking animals, no, a- a- animals seem to manifest in, in various different ways. Sometimes they are they are messed with. You, you find a number of poltergeist cases on farms where uh, cows and horses have been tied up or strung up in really quite unpleasant ways, in ways that are, you know be impossible for a human to do. Yeah. I have come across a talking animal, as far as I can recall. Well, of course, there, are, there is much, uh, I suppose, that is vocal in many poltergeist phenomena. This, of course, we were talking about the Bell Witch case in Tennessee in 1817, 1821. That was very vocal, and you have mentioned yourself some of these. Um, My particular experience with these things uh, has not really been vocal. There's been writing involved. One case scrawled across a wall in several cases, and then, of course, this cat thing. And it was, I just had this very strong impression that it was the the, the little girl uh, throwing her voice. She would hold the cat up to her to to her her shoulder her face and you know you could hear these sounds but uh, I, th- I thought it was her but apparently the networks disagreed with me. but well, it's the, a good story it's a great story the it, press it, went it wild with this stuff and and well I've got a, a, a I think I've got a, a case that although I don't it doesn't have a talking cat it, it does <laughs> have a sort of f- a full repertoire that sort of uh, may sort of uh, bring together a number a number of these uh, these uh, elements please yes. Um, yes. This took place in in France in the uh, uh, first half of the 19th century in a small village north of Lyon called Ar. And uh, the the cure there was um, a chap called St. Jean-Baptiste Vianney. And he was a very uh, inspiring teacher. Um, and many miracles were attributed to him during his lifetime and, and afterwards. He's a, he's a very major figure in the Catholic Church in France to this day. Mm-hmm. He had a, um, a poltergeist, a personal poltergeist that lasted 25 years. Yeah, very famous case. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, it, it was it was his personal poltergeist. And it had... Um, it had a repertoire. Those are the usual things: the great repetitive crashing noises, things that shook the walls. Um, you know, it, it would set fires, overturned furniture, shook beds, threw filth at uh, religious pictures and such like. But it also spoke in uh, the local dialect, 
um, in, in very quite abusively and made extensive animal noises. So when it would imitate um, cats and dogs and cows and donkeys, and then it would sing in the in the in a female voice, and then it would go back to abusing the uh, the cure in the the very sort of coarse local dialect. Um, and for his entire life, he he believed it was a demon, uh, and he, he even gave gave it a name. Uh, mm -hmm. He called it the grappa which uh, means a small rake. It's like a cute word, the kind of use, word you use for a naughty cat, the kind of, kind of thing you'd use to... It was obviously meant to denigrate this thing, but um, he, 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 had, he was convinced he had a personal demon for 25 years. Yeah, I'm familiar with the cat. I've run into uh, animal sounds and stuff in possession cases. Uh, and and you know, I had several of those, actually 10, I've... It worked on while in the seminary while a grad student in psychology in psychiatric hospital context, and uh, th there were and it sounded I don't know these people were amazing it sounded just like the animals, but again you know I, I see the relationship personally in my work between parasites in possession cases and in poltergeist cases and you know maybe that's wrong but that's the way I always saw it a absolutely amazing, okay we are what do you say Ben yeah Okay, we've got about three minutes, but uh, l let's give you the last word, Jeff. Um, what would you say to anyone who believes they've encountered a poltergeist? What advice would you give, just briefly? Well, uh, being on the, the, the sharp end of a poltergeist experience can be uh, equated to, in some cases, being experiencing a crime. For some people, yeah. it might, might well, be an absurdist spectacle, but for others, it'll be the equivalent of theatrical terrorism. Um, and I think what you, you, you really do need... Um, support in some ways and there's there's always an issue with that because many people who are researching poltergeist want the phenomena to continue for the for the people who are suffering and want them want them to go away oh absolutely um, and a lot of people yeah. who are researching it are idiots yes yes that's a put to find a point on it. yeah indeed so, so you got, i think you could be very careful who you who you let into your house absolutely to 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 actually deal with with this situation you should always i think look at um uh, mundane reasons first. You know, it could Absolutely. be another human being in in your vicinity who's actually doing this deliberately to to get at you. Uh, but um, if if that doesn't work, then you know you 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 need all the support you can get, and you need sensible, uh, careful people around you to have, to help you through this. Very true. Well, we're out of time. Jeff Holder, thank you so very much. Uh, and everybody, check out his books, especially Poltergeist Over Scotland. The other one's coming out. And uh, Jeff, we're going to have you back very soon. Much obliged. Thank you very much thank indeed. You. Thank you very much. Great conversation. That was very fun. Very good. Okay. Well, folks, that's about it for this week. I want to thank our producer, Brandon Jackson. We'll see you right here next week, December 16th. And this is your line, Ben. Yep, you just took all of it. Sorry. So on December 16th, when my dad and I will welcome author M.L. Curry to talk about psychic experiences that can accompany grief. So in the meantime, tune into our Boston slash Providence Drive Time show on WOON, 1240 AM, and ONWorldwide.com at 6 p.m. Eastern Time every Monday. And don't forget, you can get free podcasts of all our shows. We have almost 450 shows at www.behindtheparanormal.com. As we approach the winter solstice in this much-heralded year of 2012, we leave you with a thought from American author John Steinbeck. What good is the warmth of summer without the cold of winter to give it sweetness? And thanks for joining us in our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time.